Today we continue in our series called Rethinking Your Favorite Bible Verse. We've been having fun going through a number of the big hitters over the last number of weeks. Today we talk about a verse that is commonly heard at high school graduations. When the unknown future lies ahead, when opportunity awaits and encouragement is needed. I mean, life is filled with question marks. Is there any rhyme or reason to them? What's going to happen to me next? I don't know. But I sure wish that I did. Many an 18-year-old Christian student has found strength in the promise of Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or maybe we think about this on the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, not the optimistic open door of opportunity, but the other side. The season of life when it feels like the walls are closing in. That season of life of severe medical diagnosis or when we look at our children and see them in the midst of rebellion or when it feels like our marriage is on the rocks. I mean, Jeremiah 29.11 is there. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. This is one of the favorite Bible verses. If I were to take a poll, and there have been plenty of polls done, Jeremiah 29, 11 finishes in the top three almost all the time. And you can see why. I love this verse. You probably, if you know this verse, you love it. We all need encouragement. We all need hope. In a life that is filled with unknowns, it is so wonderful to know that there is somebody who does know. And that that one, God himself, actually wants to bless you. But when and how do we experience this blessing? Does this verse apply to all of us or to only some of us? Would you cite this verse to the family of a police officer in Dallas who lost his life this week? Or the patient with terminal cancer? Or the one whose children are dying of hunger in a third world country? What does welfare and future and hope look like for them? Let's dig a little bit deeper, shall we? I want to ask you to grab a Bible. I hear some pages turning. If you haven't yet, grab a Bible, open with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. And I do want to encourage you to open because we're going to be bouncing around a little bit through a couple chapters there. It's found on page 656 of that pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, I want to encourage you, please take that Bible with you today. That would be our gift to you. We value the Word of God so highly. God has changed lives and does change lives as He speaks to people through His Scriptures. And we would love for you to have a copy of it for your own. And what we're going to do over the next number of minutes together is I want to walk you through this passage in its broader context because it really does have tremendous application for us and great encouragement for us. But it might not be the type of encouragement that you think. 
might not even be the type of encouragement you want. But nevertheless, God's promise has some important implications for us. And the first reality that we see in this text is we see, and we all know from personal experience, that it is incredibly difficult to believe in God's best for us when the situation is dire, isn't it? When things are looking dark, to say, I know that God loves me and has welfare for me and a future for me, it's a tough reality. Jeremiah, the prophet, was referred to as the weeping prophet. He was sent to prophesy to God's people in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, in a season of history when they were in protracted rebellion. These people would hear God's word, they would hear his law again and again and again, and again and again and again they would turn away and rebel, and they would worship foreign gods, pagan gods. They would worship idols. And so Jeremiah comes, and his remit, or his command, is very simply to tell them to turn again, and when they don't turn, proclaim judgment upon them. How would you like that for your job description? We see this judgment proclaimed a number of different times, but flip back a couple pages with me to chapter 25. You can see one example of it. It's a resounding theme. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. He prophesies to the people of Israel on behalf of the Lord, and this is what he says. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Judgment is upon them. And by the time you fast forward to chapter 29, the judgment has already come, and it's about to come again. The nation of Babylon had conquered much of the known world. It was going from nation to nation and overcoming it. And true to form, when it came to the land of Judah, the land of the Israelites, they killed, and they raped, and they pillaged, and they gouged out the eyes of the king, and they took the best and the brightest of the land, and they carried them off as slaves to a foreign land, to the land of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had his way. He would leave some of these behind in Judah, in Jerusalem, and the expectation for them was allegiance. Nevertheless, the people continued in their paganism. They remained in Judah, some of them, and that expectation of allegiance was very real, and it was enforced. And so when a new king came upon the throne of Judah, King Zedekiah, he broke fealty with Nebuchadnezzar 
And as a result, what happened in judgment was about to happen again as the armies of Babylon were knocking at the door and the gates were shaking. So the first thing that we notice about this promise of God in Jeremiah chapter 29, this promise is not about standing in the optimistic open doors to our future. You don't often look at the high school student and say, how was Babylonian captivity for the last four years? I know for some of them it might have felt that way. But in all actuality, this original promise of God that he knows a plan, that he has a plan for them, that he has plans for their welfare and not for evil, that he has to give them a future and a hope. Jeremiah is writing to a people who have been carried off to a foreign land, who have had their friends and their neighbors slaughtered, who are in a very real way thinking that their nation, their ethnic people group, will be wiped from the face of the earth. When the situation is at its worst, the people of God needed to hear something of hope. And they did hear just that. God was not done with them yet. The application, more broadly speaking, is related to us taking the long view in this life. I mean, you and I live in such an instantaneous society that it's easy to forget that God often works out his plans over the course of many, many years, decades, even hundreds of years to come to fruition. I was out to dinner with Amy the other night for our anniversary, 15 years, and I was finding with inside of myself internal frustration at just waiting 20 minutes for the food to arrive. Some of us have friends that live in other parts of the country, or maybe they live locally, and if you haven't talked to that friend for two or three months, it's a natural inclination now for us to say, well, maybe they're not my friend anymore. Maybe they found somebody else to invest their time and their affections in. For some of us, an eight-year presidency feels like a lifetime. And according to The Economist magazine, for those people in, our, in first world countries around the world who get divorced, the average length of marriage for these wealthy countries is only 13.6 years. In typical fashion for impatient Americans, the average goes down to eight years. But God works his plans out over much longer periods of time than our impatience will allow for. Here in Jeremiah 29, if you look just one verse before this favorite verse of 29.11, in 29 verse 10, Jeremiah is writing to those who are in exile, and this is what he says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years. A month, a year, a decade is nothing for the one who has eternal purposes in mind. And what are they supposed to do? 
Well, the application for them is the same as the application for us, and that is patience. Patience met with seeking the Lord where we are found. When the circumstances look dire, this is the call for those who are his. It applies to Israel, and in this way it applies to us as well. But there's another interesting reality that we see here with regard to God's word to these exiled people. And the temptation is this temptation to to engage or to enjoy the false promises of others. You know how when you hear something said to you often enough, you tend to believe it? Especially when it's something you want to hear. (laughs) If you want something to come true and somebody says to you, it's coming true, it's coming true, it's coming true, sooner or later you're going to say, yeah, maybe it is coming true. If a father says to his son, son, you are the best player on your basketball team. Just keep shooting. Even though the boy's only shooting 15% from the field. Father says that to his son, and sooner or later the son is going to believe it to be true. Why? Because he wants it to be true. He wants to be the best basketball player on his team. And so sooner or later he's going to start Shooting even more and keep shooting even more and keep shooting even more. I mean, he's not going to have any friends. But he wanted to be that, and his dad told him that he was repeatedly, so he believed it. If your pastor tells you that God wants you to be rich, each and every person here today, God wants you to be rich. If he tells you that, if I tell you that, and then try to do some weird theological gymnastics to make the Bible say that, A lot of people will believe me. Why? Because you do want to be rich. An American scientist once visited the offices of the great Nobel Prize winning physicist Niles Bohr. This was in Copenhagen, Denmark. And he was amazed to find that over Bohr's desk was a horseshoe. And it was securely nailed to the wall in the open end up of approved manner so that it would catch all the good luck and not let any of it spill out. The American said with a nervous laugh, surely you don't believe that the horseshoe will bring you good luck, do you, professor? I mean, after all, as a scientist, and the professor interrupted and said, no, no, I believe no such thing. My good friend, not at all. I am scarcely likely to believe in such foolish nonsense. However, I am told that a horseshoe will bring you good luck, whether you believe in it or not. For people who are carried off into a foreign land and enslaved, what is the one thing they want to hear more than anything else? that they will be set free and allowed to go home. That's what they want to hear. And hence we see in Jeremiah chapter 28, look with me, a false prophet named Hananiah arose to tell the people exactly what they wanted to hear. In chapter 28, verse 2, it speaks of this Hananiah who stands up and speaks on behalf of God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, 
I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah that, who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So God says, you will be in exile for 70 years through the prophet Jeremiah. Hananiah stands up and says, don't worry, guys. You're only going to be in exile for two years. He tells them exactly what they want to hear. And my point is this. When you encounter difficulties in your life, there will be no shortage of false prophets to tell you exactly what you want to hear. And it's a great danger for the people of God, especially when times are tough. Some of them will come to you and they will say things like, when you focus on being a blessing to others, God makes sure that you are always blessed in abundance. Some of them will say things like, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Some of them will say things like, it is your right to be healed from the disease that you have. You just need to pray harder. You just need to have more faith. God always wants the best for you, and that best, whatever the best is, is defined by you. The list goes on. And some of them will come from famous TV personalities who are false teachers. And some will innocently come from friends who just want to encourage you. But God never promises these things. He may well heal you. He may well give you financial prosperity. He may well give us abundant blessing. And we should ask for these things, but this isn't the substance of his promise. So what does he tell them to do in exile, enslaved, when the days are darkest? He tells them to cast off the false teachers, to not pay any attention to them, and actually to embrace the plight that they have, as opposed to simply trying to overcome it. Look with me at chapter 29, verses 7 to 9. We see this. Again, Jeremiah writing a letter to those who are in Babylon, in exile. Verse 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will also find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, so far we have three key components. The first we see is exercising patience in God's plan. The second we see is embracing our plight of difficulty as opposed to simply trying to overcome it. And by embracing it, we mean seeking, which leads to the third, seeking faithful obedience to God in the middle of the most difficult seasons as opposed to listening to the false teachers, the false prophets, the false voices that would say there's an easy way out. 
Now, how do you know if somebody's a false prophet or a false teacher? Because you evaluate their promises against God's promises. That's how you know. He makes himself known and clear in his word. And so we have this difficult, difficulty in believing in God's best when things are hard. We've seen the rise of those telling us what we want to hear. But now, now we come to the reality of God's plan. And it is for the good of his people. And this wonderful promise to us again. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare. And not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Is this promise for those who are in exile? Yes. Is this promise for Christians today? Yes. How so? Well, follow the logic with me. Just a few chapters later, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God announces to his people what we call a new covenant. A covenant is very plainly the way that God relates to humankind. God announces a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. And this covenant we'll come to know is, is found in the person of Jesus. That through the gospel, Jesus mediates between God and humans by forgiving their sins when they exercise faith in him. And in Jeremiah 31, 34, the result of this new covenant is seen to be God saying, all will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Fast forward some hundreds of years. Jesus is now on the scene He's showing the people what God is like in his actions. He's showing the people God's power through his miracles. He's allowing the people to hear God's words as he speaks. And he does something incredible. He secures for them, for us, this new covenant that was talked about. And he secures it for us on the cross. He talks about it at the Last Supper in Luke twenty-two twenty, when he says, Raising up the cup, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So God makes a new covenant. Jesus announces that he is securing the new covenant. And the new covenant has all kinds of benefits. First and foremost, the forgiveness of your sins, as we saw in Jeremiah 31, 34. But beyond that, we see that this means that a number of God's promises, not all of them, but a large number of God's promises that were made to the people of God in the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel, are now applied to people who would put their faith in the Lord Jesus. How do we know that to be true? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, verse 20 and 22, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our heart 
as a guarantee. So because of the work of Jesus, you enjoy the promises of God that were made long ago. Even promises like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil. To give you a future. And a hope. We might say it this way. The plans of this world are God's. But the final blessing is for his people. The plans of this world are God's. And his people receive the final blessing. And so what does Jeremiah 29, 11 mean for us? I don't anticipate that many of you have been in Babylonian exile recently. Though some of your suffering might feel like you have. What this promise did not mean for Israel and what it doesn't mean for us is it doesn't mean that you are going to like or enjoy every instance in your life because God promises welfare for you. It doesn't mean that God will intervene quickly to alleviate the difficulties in your life. Sometimes he does, and we should ask him to do that. Actually, often he does. But he doesn't promise that he'll always alleviate our difficulty, our suffering, or our pain. I mean, remember, three generations of Israelites were in exile in Babylon. Seventy years. Do the math. A lot of them died in that land. And they were no less important or no less loved, but they were different types of beneficiaries of this promise. So the promise of Jeremiah 29 11 doesn't mean that you'll always overcome suffering, but it does mean that God will accomplish his purposes in and through your life. And how does he do that? He does it through Jesus through the securing of this new covenant relationship that we talked about, and that we'll talk about again in a moment when we take the Lord's Supper. And I think by a final note of application, it is very helpful to look at this promise as primarily corporate in its application and secondarily individual in its application. We read the promises of God in the Bible, and it is our natural tendency to almost always say, what does this mean for Nick today, right now? How does this apply to me and how I feel or what my difficulty is, or what my hopes or my pains or my joys are? It's all about me, 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 me in this moment. But there are a lot of promises of God, this one included, that have primarily a corporate application. God's purposes were being threatened He had made a bunch of promises to this people, Israel, and they were about to be wiped out. And he promised that they had a future. God's purposes are ever threatened in our time today. And there's great hope and comfort here. There's hope and comfort in no matter what happens in our country. No No matter how our government treats Christians or Christian churches, no matter what kind of tensions rise, culturally speaking, no matter 
how the society at large views you, treats you, engages with you, that God has a future and a hope and a welfare for the good of his people, which are his church. God's purposes in his church will never be thwarted. The plans of the world are God's, and his people receive the final blessing. The plans of the world are God's, and his people, you, (laughs) receive the final blessing. And there's great comfort there. He sees and he knows. In 1876, a small Methodist church near the ocean in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, was struck by a hurricane, and it was damaged. It was restored, but another hurricane came and damaged it and the town again. And the parishioners restored their place of worship once more, but enough was enough. So they searched for a safer location. They found some land, and they offered the owner of the property a generous amount of money for it, but he refused to sell. Then came another hurricane, and again there was massive flooding, so massive, in fact, that the church lifted from its moorings, and it sent uh, downstream, meandering through the river. The residents of the town tied ropes to the church building to try to keep it steady, to keep it from drifting away, but the current was too strong, and their ropes would not hold. When the water finally receded, the building came to rest. And it came to rest on that exact piece of ground which the prisoners had previously tried to buy. And so they went to the owner and they once again made him a generous offer. But this time he refused the money. He said, but I'll give it to you. The Lord definitely wants this church on this lot. There's a word for that. It's called providence. God's providence in which he guides us through life by his care, even when the waters are difficult, toward his intended purpose. The plans of the world are God's, but the people, his people, receive the final blessing. Barnhouse reminds us that small boys are always interested in finding out what makes things go. Many of you can relate to that. One day a boy took apart a clock to find out what made it tick. And when he tried to put it together again, he seemed to have enough springs and wheels to make two clocks. He discovered that all the parts must move in their proper way. Certain wheels must move forward, certain ones backward. There are wheels that move quickly and other wheels that move slowly. There's a large mainspring and tiny hairspring. And all the parts must work together to make the clock go. In the life of a Christian, when events move forward, we are very pleased with the progress. And we say, thank God that things are going the way that they should. We even use things or terms like, oh, God is so good, don't we? If events move backward, we're inclined to be impatient We want them to move in a direction of our own will, not understanding the purpose that God has in our lives. There are matters in this life of great importance, mainspring types of events, lives uh, of our lives, births, marriages, deaths, triumphs, tragedies. There are matters as fine as a hairspring, petty annoyances, trivial happenings, and they seem little and unimportant at the time. 
but God uses them to regulate the course of our lives. There are events in our lives that move smoothly and rapidly. And we rejoice in their action. And there are some things that lag behind and they incite our impatience. And we seek to speed them up by the tempo of our own wills. But when all of the events, backward and forward, fast and slow, great and small, when all of them are seen in relationship to each other, we must conclude that to those who love God and are called according to his plan, that everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. The plans of the worlds are God. In our joys and in our pains, in the darkest days, in the brightest hours. But as God works out those plans, the final blessing is for his people. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning, how fitting is it that the new covenant is found in this very section of scripture, the covenant in which God proclaims boldly and confidently that no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. This is a covenant secured by Jesus. It's mediated by him. It means that you and I can have a relationship with God forever. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that God says to his people, I know the plans I have for you, and they're for your welfare and for your good and for future and for hope. Do you notice how he's not, who he's not saying that to? He's not saying that to ones who aren't his people. He's not saying it to Babylon. He's not saying it to Nebuchadnezzar. Surely he's working out his providential care, his plans in different types of way. But there's no promise for those who aren't his of this incredible welfare. And that scares me, rightfully, for those who don't know him. Because his love and his grace and his mercy for those found in this new covenant through the person of Jesus results in eternal good. 